Well, good morning, church. Today we're, uh, we're going to do something a little different than we usually do. We're going to look at a number of passages on the topic of eternal security. So a number of passages on eternal security. If you wonder what that is, it's the answer to the question of whether or not a Christian can lose their salvation. Can they lose their salvation or not? And if not, why? Why are Christians secure in Christ? This is what we're going to take up on the first Sunday of 2022. Before we do, let's pray. Lord, thank You for our time this morning that we can come together and worship You. Thank You for bringing us through the year and keeping Your people. And I pray, Lord, that You would be with us in the year to come in 2022. Lord, the year of our Lord. And we thank You, Lord, that You reign from heaven and that nothing can thwart Your plans. We thank You that You are in charge and are never surprised. We thank You that everything You ordain is true and good, that You are never, you're never shocked. And Lord, You never deceive Your people, but always do good for us. And for that, we give thanks. I pray that You would help me to preach and help us to hear, Lord, that Your Word would go deep into our souls like medicine, affecting us, Lord, throughout. That our lives and how we live would be different because we know we are secure in Christ. Help us to be confident and so bold because of what you have done for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to start by asking you a question. How do you know tomorrow, when you get up out of bed, you're going to wake up and still be a Christian? And ten years from now, how do you know that you're going to be a Christian then, if you are one today? How many of you have even ever asked that question before? How do I know that I'm going to continue in the faith? You just assume that you would. You, know, you go to bed a Christian, you'll wake up a Christian. You were a Christian yesterday, you're a Christian today, you're going to continue being one tomorrow. How do you know? The reason I ask the question is because we have a whole lot of examples in the world today, especially of people who thought they were Christians or said they were Christians, and now they're not walking with Him anymore. People who have left the church in droves, people who believe they were Christians and walk with Him no more. How do you know you're not going to be one of them? Some of them were high profile, people who've written books. Some were revival preachers. Some were youth group leaders or pastors. I remember uh, when I was younger, there was a, a leader in the youth group and he had kind of a, a meteoric rise in, uh, in the area. And he was, he was talking at all of our little youth conferences uh, and in about three years, everybody who was a Christian in the region knew who this man was. By all accounts, it looked like he was uh, a rising star in that denomination and, and, and forging ahead in the Christian faith. And after three years, he walked away from it all and spends his days now in and out of prison. 
By all accounts, it looked like here's a man that God has got a hold of and he's, he's going to change the world for Christ. It looked. None of that happened. How do you know you're not going to be like that? Walk with Christ faithfully. And then one day, overcome by doubts, one day sin overwhelms you and you walk away. Lest you be deceived into thinking that these people are easily identifiable, that you can, you know, pick them out. I know who this person's going to be. I know the people who are going to continue are going to fall away. Consider Demas. Demas, who was Paul's faithful companion. In the book of Colossians, he commends Demas to the Colossians. He says, I send my greetings, and so does Paul, the beloved physician, and so does Demas. And then later on in 2 Thessalonians, 2 Timothy, Paul is at the end of his life. He's about to go to trial to be killed, and he warns Timothy, watch out for Demas, who for love of the world has abandoned the faith. Or Judas, who no one expected to betray Christ. When he said, one of you at the supper, when he said, one of you will betray me, everyone suspected themselves, but nobody initially could easily identify Judas as the one who would betray him. They said, is it I? And say, is it him? None of, the, none of the apostles said, I knew Judas would do it. Judas, by all accounts, looked like a disciple. And if you had gone to the early years of Jesus' ministry with Judas following him, Judas himself would have been repulsed at the idea of betraying Christ into the hands of his enemies. We have to be very careful then how we answer this question. How do I know I'm going to wake up tomorrow a Christian? And I won't lose my salvation. It's been a divisive debate among Christians for a long time. There have been flares of debate come up from the beginning, like with Pelagius and Augustine, if you're familiar with that debate. Um, But this has been especially acute in the last 200 years. The last 200 years is where you really see Christians taking seriously whether or not they can lose their salvation. Right? With the rise of the modern man, man is the center of all things, man is supreme, man is free and liberated and autonomous. When that rose up in the culture, it had a terrible impact on the church. And people began to believe that the ultimate decisive factor in their salvation was themselves. This has always existed, but it hasn't been until around 200 years ago uh, it, it really entered into the mainstream. It existed on the peripheries of Christianity. You might hear about one odd group that believed it somewhere, but now everybody wrestles with this. The people are able, without any assistance from God, to come to God. Jesus' words in John 6.44, right? No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Or John 3, no one can even see the kingdom of God unless he's been born again. Or Romans 9, God has mercy on whom he has mercy. They were forgotten or their meaning was interpreted away. And in their place entered a humanity not totally depraved, but a humanity free to carve out their own spiritual destiny totally independent of the work of God and their lives. And when that happened, and men believed it, that they were good enough to come, that there was an island of righteousness left in them, that even though they were bad, they still were good enough to be able to make the right choice. And of their own free will, without any intervention by God's Spirit, they could choose to come to Him. 
They could decide to come to Christ and be saved. When that took hold, it was a small step from there to say a person could do the opposite. And if they were able to come to God unassisted and unenlightened and unregenerated by the Spirit, then they could just as simply choose to walk away. If a man is totally free to come to God, he is totally free to choose to walk away from God after having come. Salvation becomes a revolving door. You walk in and you walk out however you will. And it's in that thinking, that atmosphere that Christians, and not all of them, but many of them, especially in Methodist and Pentecostal branches, they began to think it is possible to lose your salvation. God's faithful and God will keep you. God will welcome you and no wise will He turn you away. But if you are unfaithful and you decide to turn your back on Him, you are free to go ahead and do it. And so when the problem arose, and it's a problem that all churches deal with, where people who seem to be faithful, they seem to genuinely love the Lord, they seem to believe and they profess to believe, and then a time would come when they would fall away and it looked, outwardly at least, as if this person had lost their salvation. Many Christians would quickly affirm that is in fact what happened. They lost it. They walked away from God. However, the historic and biblical answer to this question, what does it mean when someone leaves the church? It's different. It comes from 1 John 2.19. In 1 John 2.19, it says this. It says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain or obvious that they all are not of us. And so do you see what the Word of God says here in 1 John? That when someone abandons the faith and leaves the church, when they walk away from the body of Christ, it's evidence that they never belonged to Him in the first place. They were not of us. And their going, John says, makes it obvious. The, the implication then is, if anyone who, is that anyone who belongs to Christ will never leave Him. And when someone does... When someone abandons the faith, no matter how strongly they persist, protest or how adamantly they affirm that they were Christians, they'll say, I was a Christian, I did everything I could, I read the Bible, I prayed, I did all of this, went to church, I was a Christian, and now I'm not. When someone says that, one thing you can be sure of is they're not telling the truth because they are saying something in direct opposition to 1 John 2.19. Let God's Word be true, though every man a liar. And the Word says, if they left, went out, the one thing you can know is they never belonged to Christ in the first place. So let me make it as clear as I can at the onset. It is impossible, totally impossible, does not happen for a believer to lose their salvation. It is impossible for a Christian to walk away from Christ. And though it's simple to say, it's more difficult to believe or to convince someone of it, especially if they've been wrestling with this or confused about it for a while. And so this morning, we're going to, to take up the doctrine of eternal security, and we're going to look at three levels of it, and we're going to answer the question, why? Right? Can someone lose their salvation? Absolutely not. Well, we want to know why that is. Why will no one who is truly a believer ever fall away? Three levels of security. The first are the promises of God. 
The promises that God makes that are explicit in His Word to keep and not lose His people. And the reason that this comes first is because it's right on the surface. You don't have to dig deep to find it. It's right there from the Word of God written on the pages. You just need to read the text and you can see what it says. And there are a lot of verses that speak on this. We're not going to get to them all, but I hope we're going to get to enough of them. And the first one we're going to look at is John 10... John 10, 27 through 29. John 10, 27 through 29. And I'll read the verses. It's hard to, to always uh, be flipping to them. So if you want to write them down and take a look at them later, you can. If you want to flip to them so you can read along, feel free. But I will be reading these, these passages. John 10, 27 through 29. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one is able to snatch them out of My hand. My Father who has given them to Me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. No one is able to pluck you from the hand of God. That's the the thrust of this passage. Nobody can take you out of the hand of God. You know, I remember when we went to the beach this summer, my family and I, we went out in the waves, and the waves were kind of high, um, higher than they normally are, to be sure. And one of my boys came out with me, and so I told him, hold on tight, because I didn't want the wave to catch him and sweep him out to sea. And so he held on really tight. But you know what? And he was holding on with all his might. <laughs> Little white knuckles. As tight as he was holding on, it wasn't enough to stop a wave from overcoming him. Didn't matter how tight his little grip. So I held on to him. And he was a whole lot safer with me holding on to him than he was holding on to me because no wave was going to snatch him out of my hand. And yes, he, he clung tightly to me, but guess what? His security, right? His safety was not in my little boy's ability to hold on to me, but in my ability to hold on to to him, and it's the same for Christians, and that's what Jesus is saying here in John chapter 10. Your clinging steadfast to God does not depend on your strength or how firm your grip is, because if that's all you have, you don't have enough. Your security is from God, your Father, who has hold of you. That's what it means when it says He is greater than all. He is stronger than everyone in heaven or on earth, including you. And He uses all of this strength to keep you from being seduced or being carried away. Which is what Paul makes much of in Romans 8, 38 and 39. The second promise we'll look at this morning. He says, Romans 8, 38 and 39, for I am sure or I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, I don't know how people who think you can lose your salvation interpret this passage. The conclusion in this passage is that nothing can take you out of the hand of God. Nothing can separate you. Nothing in heaven. Nothing on earth. What's, what's the picture being presented here? 
Well, I want you to imagine a world leader today, world leader, very powerful, and he has his sights set directly on you. As an individual, he hates you, and he hates your God, and he wants to do everything in his power to prevent you from being a Christian. And so he gathers up all of the economic pressure that he can. He calls up all of the military might at his disposal. He threatens death to anyone who would help you. And he even makes a pact with the devil to do everything in their power to condemn you to hell. Could he do it? Absolutely not. It is impossible. It does not have the power to pluck you out of the hand of your heavenly Father. You know, sometimes you, you hear of terrible measures being taken to convince Christians to renounce their faith. You read about it in missionary magazines where they are tortured physically and mentally. They are deprived. People do all kinds of terrible things to make people renounce their faith in Christ. But guess what? It doesn't happen. They endure. And do you know why they endure? Right? When you hear of this, when you read of this, when you witness this, you're not witnessing the resolve of certain Christians. When you read about these stories, don't think, well, here's a Christian who is strong in the faith. That's not what you're seeing. You are witnessing the faithfulness of God to keep them from falling. God will not allow anything to separate His children from His love. If something tries, God comes and He comforts you. If something pulls, God comes and pulls back stronger. And if they kill you, which is the worst that they can do, God dispatches His chariots to bring you home to glory. Nothing in heaven or on earth or under the earth or in all creation can separate you from the love of God that is found in Christ. Or again, Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, 7 and 9. He says, So you're not lacking in any gift as you await the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, 7, 8 and 9. Verse 8. Who will sustain you? The Lord Christ. Who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. While you wake up tomorrow and be a Christian, because Christ will sustain you until the end so that your sin will not destroy you. But you will be guiltless before Him on the day of His coming. He will not allow your sin to cancel out your confession. He will not allow your sins to imperil your salvation. Sometimes you fall into sin. You say, how could I have done this? How could I have sinned in such a way? And, and the condemnation of what you've done, it weighs heavy on you. You fear you might fall away because of shame. When that happens, you preach to yourself, Christ will sustain me to the end guiltless because of His work to redeem me. And by the way, this is written to the church at Corinth. If you know anything about the church of Corinth, you don't expect to hear Christ will sustain you guiltless in the greeting. The church at Corinth was probably the most immoral church and struggling church in the New Testament. In fact, you can read about uh, Clement who came after the apostles. So you have the apostles, second generation of believers. Clement of Rome was a leader in the church. 
And he writes a letter to the church of Corinth saying, don't you remember all of those things that Paul wrote to you? Why do you keep doing these things? They weren't the shining star of the Christian world. And yet, Paul, in his greeting to them, reminds them, Christ will sustain you guiltless to the end. It's our only hope in this life. Christ will keep us in spite of our sins because He has removed them as far as the east is from the west. You know, I know of one denomination that believes uh, when you commit certain sins, I've had conversations with people, older people in this denomination, is, and as death gets nearer, they become much more fearful. They're afraid of growing old. They're afraid of what it will mean. And the reason why is, is not so much that death is near, but they believe that you can lose your salvation. They believe that certain sins, if you commit them, will make you fall away. And sometimes some of their members, their greatest fear is that in their last moments of life, when death is upon them, they'll lapse and they'll doubt or the pain will overwhelm them and they'll sin or they'll complain. And then they do that and they die and they go to hell. It's a, that's, a, that's a fear some people who believe they can lose their salvation have. I mean, this is salvation by works if there ever was. There is no concept in there being kept by Christ and it offers no comfort. It's no comfort whatsoever, people, to trust in yourself. To answer the question, how do I know I won't lose my salvation? Well, I'm going to keep being a Christian. That's not a comfort. Because listen, if you could lose your salvation, you would. Do you know how much in this world is working against you to turn you away from Christ? The flesh that you live in, the world and its ways, and the devil himself are trying to keep you from being a Christian. And if you say, yeah, I can keep myself, you're saying, I'm stronger than me. I am stronger than the world around me. I'm stronger than the devil himself. If it was up to you, you would lose it. Now, don't misunderstand me. This doesn't mean that we just coast now. Okay? This doesn't mean we shift into Christian cruise control and don't worry about anything anymore. I'm secure in Christ, so I can relax. No, there's work to be done. We're commanded, for instance, to keep ourselves in the love of God. Elsewhere, we're commanded to persevere unto the end. Christians are told to put to death sin, to persevere. But what you have to recognize is that all of the keeping that you do is precisely because God keeps you. He works through means. Right? He doesn't say, I will keep you so, and, and then go and work imperceivably in the shadows so that you don't really ever participate. Right? It's not a, a hidden thing. You say, how does God keep His people? He keeps you by the means of making you want to follow Christ even at the cost of your own life. So whenever you say or think, I would rather die than betray Christ, you are really saying that, you are really thinking that, and the reason it's in there is because God is at work in you. Which is why Jude, only two verses after commanding Christians to keep themselves in the love of God, he concludes with verse 24. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy, God is able to keep you from stumbling. Keep yourself in the love of God. This is why anything you do in the Christian life has its origin in Him. Right, the very reason you fear the thought of falling away, it's not because you've worked that fear up in you. 
God has put it there. And it's His work. And when you respond to that fear by running to Christ, clinging to Him more closely, it's God at work in you. Right? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Because it is God who is at work in you. Philippians 2.12 Or struggle and work hard striving with all of the energy that He powerfully provides. Colossians 1.29 Or I worked harder than all of them, Paul says, yet not I, but grace and Christ working through me. This is how God keeps you. There are dozens and dozens of passages that affirm God's power and determination to keep His people, to, to finish the race. God will keep you to the end. He who began a good work in you will finish it. And now at this point, someone might raise the objection. And they'll say something like this. Yes, God is able and willing and powerful to keep His people. He will preserve them. I believe it. I get all of that. I see it. But that's not what I mean when I say you can lose your salvation. I don't mean it begins with God or that God is weak or that God turns His back, that He doesn't hold up His end of the bar. That's not what I'm talking about. I know God's faithful. When I say someone can lose their salvation, I'm talking about when His people break faith and turn away and abandon Him. That's what I'm talking about. Well, there are two problems with that. There's one answer, but there's two problems. One, it assumes that every promise of God has an exception clause built in there somewhere that says, only if you are willing. And quite frankly, none of those verses have anything even remotely like an exception clause, not in them or in the context or even implied. But two, and worse, it actually misunderstands what it means to be a Christian. So it doesn't understand what it means to be a Christian, and it assumes God's faithfulness to us depends on our faithfulness to Him, as though each of the promises read, God will keep you if you are faithful. So take a look at 2 Timothy 2, 11 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13. This was a passage, I remember when I first read it, it surprised me tremendously. It, it didn't read the way I expected it to read. It says, For if we died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will also deny us. Now pay attention to verse 13. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. If we are faithless, He, God, is faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. That's not how I expected this verse to end. I remember the first time I read it, I expected full well to read, If we are faithless, He will be unfaithful. But it didn't say that. It said He is faithful. Faithful, And then I was surprised a second time because I expected it to say, okay, if God is faithful, then He must read next, then He cannot deny us. Which isn't what it reads either. It says He cannot deny Himself. Two surprises. God is faithful to the unfaithful. And the reason for that faithfulness is because He cannot deny Himself. So our being kept 
even when we are unfaithful, depends on God being faithful to Himself. So what's that mean? Is that the same as saying God will keep His Word? God will never break His promises? Is that what it means? Well, that's part of it, but it's a lot more than that. It says He is faithful to Himself. So He's keeping His Word. He is. He's not going to break it, but it's not to us. He is keeping the promise He made to Himself, which is the second level of our eternal security. You find this in the covenant of redemption expressed, I believe, in the new covenant. So take a look at Jeremiah 32, 37 through 41. Jeremiah 32, 37 through 41. It says, Behold, I will gather them from all of the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety and they shall be my people and I will be their God and I will give them one heart and one way that they will fear me forever for their good and for the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from them from doing them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn away from me. I will put the fear of me in their hearts so they will not turn away from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will place them in the land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. God has made a covenant. And in this covenant, He says He will not allow His people to turn away. Right? Your salvation, your security, it is not in your hands. One of the things that this passage says is the burden of keeping you in the faith, of your pers uh, perseverance and preservation, God has taken that upon Himself. So when you wonder whether or not someone can walk away from the faith, you don't ask the person, you ask God. Because He's the one who is making it sure. Right? He promises, that's what, that's what He says, right? He promises things in this passage. He promises He will gather His people. He'll make them safe. He'll be their God. He will give them one heart and one way so that they'll fear Him for their own good. Verse 40, He will not stop. He will never turn away from doing good to them. I said this morning in the service that that one passage, that one line is worth a sermon in itself. You ever stop and think? He, what it means when God says He will never stop, never turn away from doing good to His people. If you're a Christian, the implications for that, never will God stop doing good towards you. Everything that happens in this life is for your good. Everything that happens to you, if, even if you perceive it as bad, is for your good, and God will never stop doing it. This passage is probably the foundation for Romans 8.28. All things work together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to His purposes. He'll gather His people and He will put the fear of Himself in their hearts so that they will not turn away from Him. Can somebody turn their back on God? Can they walk away and lose their salvation? God says, not if I have anything to say about it. See, when God saves a person, He changes them. 
He gives them a new heart, we're told elsewhere, and a heart that will not fall away. And you say, yeah, yeah, I understand, but what if I, that's part of the covenant, what if I break the covenant? Well, the whole point is God won't let you. He will keep you. But secondly, you have to understand the covenant wasn't made in the first instance with you, and so it's not yours to break. In Genesis 15, Genesis 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham. And in the, in the ancient world, the way you would do this, the way you'd make a covenant was you would take animals and you would cut the animal in half and you would spread the animal out, making a path down between the animals that are split in two. And then the terms of the covenant would be laid out and both parties would walk through the animals, walk in between. And, uh, and what it was communicating was, if either of us break this covenant then let us be cut in half like these animals, split in two and put aside. That's what's to happen to whoever broke the covenant. When you pass through, that was kind of like signing your name to the covenant. So Abraham does this. God tells him to do it. Get ready to make a covenant. Abraham does. He splits them apart. He fights the vultures off all day long. Evening comes. He's been out in the Middle Eastern sun all day. He's tired. He lies down. He falls asleep. And then he is woken up, and when he wakes up, he sees a burning fire pot, we're told, pass between all of the pieces of the animals. And what happened? God came and went through the animals alone. And when he does, he is taking all of the terms of the covenant upon himself. One of the parts of the covenant was, Abraham, you be faithful. And when God walks through alone, what he is saying is, Abraham, you have to be faithful. That's part of the covenant. And guess what? I am going to keep you faithful. He takes Abraham's obligations for keeping the covenant upon himself as well as his own so that he could be all in all. And so even though Abraham benefits from this, and even though the promises are to Abraham, God does not make the covenant with Abraham. He makes it unilaterally by himself. And it's the same thing here. God makes a covenant to save a people and to do good to a people and to keep a people, but he doesn't make it primarily with them. He makes it with Christ. He makes it with his son and the promises he promises in places like Psalm 2, he says to his son, I will give you an inheritance from the nations, which is what Jeremiah 32 is talking about. God will give an inheritance to his son. And so the covenant promise is not made between God and his people. We're the beneficiaries of it. We are the subject of it. We're included in it. We are part of it, but it's not made with us. This is a covenant between God the Father and God the Son, which is why Jesus says in John that His Father has given a people to Him. Or John 17, He prays in this incredible way. Verse 6, He says, I have manifested Your name to the people whom You have given Me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. So all of this new covenant talk of God's people being changed, and new hearts given, and sins forgiven, kept from falling away, these aren't promises primarily given to us. 
These are promises about the kind of people God the Father is going to give to God the Son. It's as if he says to his beloved, because of your obedience in rescuing these people, I'm going to regenerate them and give them to you, and I'm going to change them in such a way that they will fear my commandments and never, ever fall away. This is the kind of people, son, I will give to you from the nations. These are the kinds of people who will be your inheritance. This is why he says he cannot deny himself. The Father, God the Father, cannot deny God the Son by being unfaithful to the covenant, even though sometimes we who are part of it are unfaithful. This is why Paul says when we are unfaithful, God is faithful because he cannot deny himself. You can almost imagine the conversation in heaven. and The Puritans wrote a lot about this. They love to write about the covenant of redemption between the Father and the Son. But in heaven, imagine God lays out the terms. Here are a people, Son, and I'm going to move in them with omnipotent, world-creating power, and I'm going to take out the hearts of stone, and I'm going to put in a heart of flesh, and I'm going to write my laws on that heart, and I'm not going to allow these people to make shipwreck of their faith ever throughout all eternity. I am giving them to you, son. You go through with this. You drink the cup, endure the cross, vindicating my righteousness, and these are the kinds of people I will give you. Weak? Yes. Often floundering? Yes. But they will love you and they will love your commands and ultimately, because I have dealt with them, they will never forsake you. God has promised to do so for His Son. We just don't have the power to undo that. Yes, brothers and sisters, this is encouraging. My greatest fear is one day that I would walk away. I don't know if, I don't know if you've ever wrestled with that. But doubts are there. Sin is there. And because there are a lot of things in this world stronger than me, the devil is stronger than me. The pressures in the world are stronger than me. My own fleshly desires are sometimes stronger than me. But they're not stronger than God who is working in me. And if my salvation depended on my ability to persevere, I would be a goner. If my ability to persevere depended on me, I would, I would not be a Christian tomorrow morning. I wouldn't make it to Monday. And neither would you. Praise be to God, it doesn't depend on me. The Father is faithful to the Son, and because He has given me to Him, I'm safe. Now, when we were reading this passage, maybe, maybe there was one thing that stood out to you, and you said, yeah, I, okay, He makes a covenant with His Son, but I kept seeing the word them there and hearing the word them, like He's making the covenant with them. But who's the them? It is us. It is us. And there is a sense where he makes that covenant with us. But he makes the covenant with us in Christ. Not to us individually. Not to us off on our own. He makes the covenant with us in Christ. You know, Paul on the road to Damascus, he's, he's going to Damascus. The reason he's on his way there is to hunt down Christians, put them in jail and kill them. Christ appears to him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting my church? 
Why are you persecuting me? And a covenant made with God's people is, in a very real way, a covenant made with Christ. And the reason it says them is not because God makes it with them, but because when he makes it with Christ, we are there in Christ. And this is the second or the third level of our security. And these, these levels, they're like, they're like locks and doors barred on a safe that keep inside our hearts secure and saved in Christ. And this third level, it goes all the way back to before the beginning. Right? Because if you want to build a tower called eternal security that reaches as far as it suggests into eternity, you need a foundation that goes back before the foundation of the world. And the third reason why no Christian can lose their salvation is because they were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And I mean a lot more than what you probably think of when you think of the term choosing or you think of the term election. A lot more than what might immediately come to mind. Paul says this in Romans 8. He says, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined, and uh, predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that they might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, listen, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Listen, the Word is all, not some. There's not a diminishing number. All who were foreknew were predestined. And all who were predestined we're called, and all who were called are justified, and all who are justified will be glorified. And so the picture here of election, it's not so much of, as of God choosing arbitrarily a people to say. That's not the biblical picture. The picture is that we have been united with Christ in Him before the foundations of the universe. Just think about this. In the New Testament, 80 plus times, the most common way of defining a Christian is defining them as someone who is in Christ. In Christ. That's what it means to be elect. Not so much chosen as placed in Christ in eternity past. And if you have any, any doubts about this, Ephesians 1 verse 3 says so unambiguously and in very clear terms. Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him. So, chosen in Christ when? Before the foundation of the world. Chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. In Revelation, it talks about a book called the Book of Life. You've probably heard of it. Those who are written in it, it's not just the Book of Life. It's a book of life of the Lamb who was slain. And then in Revelation, I think it's Revelation 13, 7, it says, and it was written before the foundation of the world. Do you see the picture that, that is given in that verse? If you're a Christian, God has a book called the Book of Life, and He wrote your name in that Book of Life, and you know when He put it there? Before He spoke a single ray of light into existence. You can think of it this way. In eternity past, when God determined who would be saved, He chose them in His Son. In the mind of God, 
the eternal mind of God, His elect, were in His Son from eternity past. And He designed to bring you to glory from the beginning of timelessness. He set His love on you and set in plan the motion to bring you to glory, to save you by placing you in His Son. So election is the foundation of our union with Christ. Every Christian who will ever live was there in the mind of Christ and in the mind of the Father and in the mind of the Spirit when the work of redemption was still only a plan. Not only that, but Christ lived a perfectly sinless life and you were there united with Him in it. You ever thought about that? When you read the Gospels, you were united with Him in His obedience. You were united with Him in His perfect righteousness. You are united with Him in His death. We are united with Him in His burial. We are united with Him in His resurrection. We ascended with Christ. We are seated with Him and we reign with Him. All biblical language to describe who we are in Christ. So from eternity to eternity, the elect Christians have been in Him. He didn't send His Son into the world to die and rise again for an unknown group of people. He didn't send His Son into the world to make salvation possible. He says in Matthew, I came to save My people, a definite group of people, from their sins. He was sent to save those who from eternity past were in Him so that even when you die, you are the dead in Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 You understand the implications this has for your eternal security? This is what it means to be a Christian. You are inseparably linked with Christ. You were there in the mind of God long before you were even born. You were in union with Christ every step of His life. Every act of obedience, every act of sympathy, all of His love and every act of compassion was credited to us. We were there with Him in every deed of love and every kind act He did. We were in Him. We were with Him on the cross, we're told. We died in Christ. Our old self was crucified with Christ. We rose with Christ. Colossians 3 We're in Him, and for that reason, our perseverance, our preservation, our being kept is directly dependent on the success of Christ. Because if because He succeeded, you succeed in Him. You are as able to fall away from grace as the Father is able to reject Christ and kick Him out of heaven. Because that's what would have to happen for any believer to lose their salvation. But Christ is not exiled from the heavenly places, but sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Do you ever wonder when you read Paul, sometimes he's talking about the resurrection, he's talking about our our security in Christ. He makes so much of the resurrection. This is the reason why. Because Christ rose, we can have full confidence that all who are in Christ will likewise rise. Because Christ ascended, we can have full confidence that everyone who is in Christ will likewise ascend. 
our eternity is not something so much that God takes and creates and gives to us as a gift as much as He takes us and places us in Christ and we enjoy all of these benefits via His Son. Because you are in Him, one day you will join Him on that throne. There are no exceptions. He will keep you and He will not lose one that the Father has given to Him. No one can snatch you out of His hands. He will keep you guiltless to the end. And because you are in Christ, nothing can separate you from the love of God. For you to be separated from the love of God, Christ would have to be separated from the love of God. It will never happen. And as sure as He is risen from the grave, as sure as the Father has set His love on Him, you too will be raised and loved in Christ. Let's pray. Oh Lord, what words could capture what we are in Your Son? Who could have imagined this? That we would be called sons of God that we would be adopted in your family, that Christ would be the firstborn among many brothers, that we would be placed in Him. Thank you, Lord, that our lives are hidden with Christ on high so that no one can pluck us out of your hand. You are wonderful in all of your ways and everything you do. And it's to you we place our confidence and it's in you we place our hope and it's in you and you alone Lord when you died we died when you rose we rose now it's just a matter of waiting for it to be fulfilled and thank you that we cannot lose what you have blessed us with because we are secure in Christ Amen